Joshua Myers is Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Howard University and the author of Cedric Robinson, The Time of the Black Radical Tradition, and We Are Worth Fighting For, A History of the Howard University Student Protest of 1989. Uh, I am so excited to talk to him today about racial capitalism and ultimately football. Uh, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, such a pleasure. Um, and, and I want to kind of start from the beginning here, because uh, I think, you know, a lot of our listeners um, may not even be that familiar with racial capitalism as a concept, as a sort of theoretical framework. And so I really do want to start with that, that, that question of what is racial capitalism? Um, and that is, if we were to think about racial capitalism as a theoretical framework that can help us think through social relations in U.S. society, both historically and today, how does it help us understand the interplay between race and capitalism? Is it as simple as Robin Kelly's formulation in his reading of Cedric Robinson on racial capitalism? And Kelly writes, quote, Capitalism has always operated within a system, an ideology, that assigns differential value to human life and labor. Or even another way of asking this might be, is it fair to view racial capitalism um, as a kind of hermeneutic to get at what student, Stuart Hall was referring to when famously he described race as, quote, the modality in which class is lived. What do you think? Well, um, so I've written and mentioned elsewhere that what Robinson was doing with the term, it was really trying to name something about Western civilization, first and foremost. Um, it is as a civilization, like a constellation of, of psychic and cultural uh, factors that produces the political and economic structures that define and assign value to human life. So yes, um, Kelly's formulation in its simplicity captures the point. Um, but you know, this stuff is hardened into practice long before there's a United States to speak of. And the United States is of course part of that civilizational complex at the same time. And so we should have expected, could have expected racialized differences um, and, the, and the violences that attend to them to have emerged within the United States. I mean, it's endemic to the to the idea. Um, and so human populations are raised in order to organize their value as labor, uh, but that they could be so organized is because human beings were thought to have or lack a particular kind of value in every system that preceded capitalism. And so for Robinson, for Sergio Robinson, um, it was critical to understand both. Um, you know, this idea of the West or the idea of Europe and also the ways that race function in the present. Um, there's a less alone and lesser cited text uh, that he wrote called Forgeries of Memory and a Meaning. And in that book, he connects capitalist media and entertainment uh, to the maintenance of these racial of the racialized image as it um, pertains to the requirements of capital, which force changes in the nature and intensity of racialized portrayals of race and colonized peoples. And so it's in that text that we find the link between what I'm calling the civilizational complex and the more concrete racist practices that are continued into the present. Now, with respect to Stuart Hall, I think it converges with Hall's description and of this modality in important ways, but I'm not so sure that that was the intent behind, at least in Robinson's usage of racial capitalism. Um, of course, you know, there's this question of, you know, where the term comes from and what the differences might mean. 
think others would have to take that up. Um, but I would say, and I actually discussed this in my in my forthcoming book of Black Study, that it's interesting to chart the left's investments um, in the idea of race and capitalism, as it is to think with liberalism's adaptation uh, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think those things are happening at the same time in interesting ways. I think both seem to want to have a conversation about race, um, perhaps to cleanse their respective ideological camps of responsibility, or at least to sharpen their analysis of the problem. And so I find it interesting, but mostly inattentive uh, to the deeper antagonisms beneath the surface. And I think the economic exploitation is but the most open and violent expression of something that goes a lot deeper. I think that's really what Robinson was after with the idea of racial capitalism. Okay, thank you. Uh, there's so much there, and I think we're going to keep teasing that out, maybe in slightly more concrete terms as we go through this discussion. But just maybe one other um, theoretical piece that's just sort of building on what you're saying that I wanted to add was that I, I was struck in thinking, especially again, as you say, that like racial capitalism precedes the United States, and we can only understand sort of the United States within a much larger history of racial capitalism um, and violence and accumulation. But if we are thinking about it in the United States context, um, Sharice Bird and Steli wrote, uh, I think, a terrific essay in New Left Review. Uh, and in that piece, she characterized blackness within uh, racial capitalism as, quote, a structural location at the intersection of indispensability and disposability. This idea of blackness, then, is something that is essential to capitalist accumulation and yet simultaneously treated as worthless which kind of sounds like a contradiction, but I think it actually isn't because what capitalism requires is the destruction of human life for the production of value. But still, it seems to me that it kind of helps explain a great deal about both racism and capitalism. Does that, does that make sense to you as well? Do you agree with that indispensability, disposability frame as a kind of way of almost applying ideas around racial capitalism? Well, in, in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's true. I, just, I probably wouldn't use the word blackness here. Um, okay, yep. I think uh, for me, it's it's about a, a process of racialization that affects all raced and colonized peoples, which is everybody, mm-hmm. um, at some point, at some level. And to me, blackness is what gets at who the people are, right? Um, you know, it's 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 African peoples who are called black, and that are and that's a group of people that have been racialized, right? I think there's a distinction between that process and who these people actually are. And the external process that's imposed upon them is important to understand. And it does have those elements um, of disposability, right? We can go back to the plantation, how, you know, the value inherent in, you know, those lives of, of, of these, those Africans who are on the plantation, right? There's a differential value. And clearly, uh, we can talk about the indispensability, indispensability of their labor, right, to this whole uh, project uh, that we're calling, you know, mo- the modern world. Um, but I think what Burton Staley may, may be uh, gesturing towards here is that, you know, it was their humanity, it was not their humanity, <laughs> right, that was required. It was their bodies, it was their labor. And mm-hmm. so there's a the value of black labor branded as black, enslaved, subject to a calculus that made it unlike any other labor source at the time. Um, but also, there are other things that are happening too, right? The plantation economies of the new world, we have to juxtapose it to the coloniality that's that's facing 
um, indigenous peoples at the same time. You also have to think about uh, what's happening in terms of other parts of the world, uh, Asia in particular, um, of course. And this thing has, a, a, I mean, Lisa Lowe talks about this in the intimacies of four continents or her work in intimacies of four continents. Like, there are many different levels of disposability. <laughs> there are many different levels of indispensability, right? Um, but in terms of African peoples who were forced into this, I mean, it was, our labor was both replaceable because to be race implied no agency, no citizenship. Uh, but there's also, um, you know, the centrality, right, of that labor, which, you know, we could not have had <laughs> the development and evolution <clears throat> of industrial societies without it, right? And so... Uh, what makes race and colonized people's disposability a unique feature of modern capitalism, I think, has a lot to do with the black experience. In a sense, I think, you know, you may not need even racial capitalism to explain that. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 so endemic to this whole um, this whole project. And I know to the extent that people want to kind of update the term and make it try to explain that, I think it's fine. Um, I'm just not sure that we even need at least uh, Robinson's framing to really understand, um, right, this notion of, of indispensability, because in many respects, um, it's always been there. It's always been there. And, you know, there is no, and the same, same, the same is true of like how people talk about post-colonialism and um, various sort of evolutions and stages and it's like, yes, we can talk about changes, but there's also like, this has always been, right? This has always been part of um, these Western societies. And in that sense, um, returning racial capitalism back to an understanding of, of the nature of a civilization, um, you know, might clarify, you know, these deeper senses of how there's continuity. Um, and at the same time, we, we, of course, need to be able to understand the specific expressions of it, um, which we will talk about today. But, um, you know, racial capitalism doesn't start from the specific expressions of it. It starts from the deeper foundational kind of uh, orientation. And I think that's really important for us. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, then, yeah, coming back to those specific expressions, because you're right, that's something that we ultimately do want to talk about. This is a show ultimately about sports. Um, and so we, we want to make sure we get there. Um, and, and we're going to ultimately get to football particularly. But I don't, I don't know if do you have any thoughts in a more in a more general sense about um, what might make racial capitalism? But I'm also I'm hearing your kind of caution that we mm -hmm. may not need to be thinking in specific terms about racial capitalism. Um, as a way for understanding sport, race, and exploitation in the United States today. Oh, I think it, I think it can be useful. Like, it's just where you start, right? It's where you okay. sort of develop your origin point. Um, like this idea of, of differential value assigned to different types of labor, right? Mm -hmm. That's clearly a specific expression 
that you can't really understand if you only leave it as a specific expression, right? So you have to go back. You have to go back to a starting point, to a, to an origin story in many respects to understand how it's possible for everybody to just accept that this free labor that largely people of African descent are providing to a horrendous industry People Mm -hmm. simply accept and enjoy and are entertained by it, right? That's something that I think going back to like an origin story in Western civilization about who and what and how can help us clarify. So I think it is useful in understanding a U.S. exploitation today. Um, So the function of this this system, capitalist exploitation, is clearly driven by profit, right? Mm -hmm. Has this aspect that there's a destructive aspect and that mirrors other systems historically. It actually mirrors like the things that came <laughs> before capitalism. Um, and so the plantations were, were sites of many things, um, including athletic competitions, right? Well, industrial capitalism, right? Um, so it, the plantations were sites of athletic competitions. Some of them had a purpose that looked exactly like sports do today. Entertainment, pacification, uh, but also profit, right? And so absolutely, I think we have to understand uh, you know, sports within that lens in order for it to make a lot of sense. Yes. Okay. Well, so did you yourself play sports? Did it have a significant role in your own life? And, and I'm curious, like, if the answer to that is yes, did those experiences have any impact on your thinking about these sort of theoretical questions? So I played sports every day of my life until college. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't remember. I can't. I can't conceive of of my childhood, my my early life without sports. Um, but it was not until I reached maybe the last two years of high school, where playing professionally felt like it might be off the table at that point. The dreamy, okay. the dreamy side of it, that start that started to fade a little bit, um, and so that is where I start to kind of understand, hmm, something is a bit off, something's off here, this is not normal, <laughs> or maybe not. I shouldn't use the word normal, but there's something, there's something here, there's a there there, <laughs> but I did yeah. not experience or understand that racialization and the racist aspects aspects of it until a lot later, um. And so I did go to a predominantly black high school in Orangeburg, South Carolina, Orangeburg, Wilkinson. Um, I noticed things, right? There's, a, there's this notion of differential value, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like one year we were cheated out of making uh, the playoffs in football. And it was suggested then, oh, this is a black school. We don't want them in the playoffs. I mean, it's, uh. it's kind of whispers, right? We were like, I think our record was like seven and three or something like that, um, which is, you know, pretty good. Yeah. And I think um, during that time, I can't remember the specifics, but um, it was like the top two or three teams from every region made it to the playoffs. And somehow seven and three wasn't good enough for us, um, which is crazy. There was also yeah. like the inferiority complex. Um that we sometimes accepted, um, you know, we had relatively less resources. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, there was the politics of respectability. Um, we had to perform a non-threatening blackness. 
um, especially when we visited uh, some of the major schools um, in the state of South Carolina. There was, you know, wear a shirt and tie, you know, comb your hair. It was, it was kind of inscribed, and I and I thought that was just okay. You know, we're just trying to look nice, but it was also we're trying to look not threatening. Um, right. You're trying to get the refs on our side. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, <laughs> it's, it was, it was, it was that as well. And I, I didn't have the analytical tools necessary mm-hmm. to understand that. And even in, in our basketball, basketball is my first love, and that was where, okay. um, you know, I thought I was going to, you know, play, 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 play most of the sport I was going to play most of the time. And this was the era. I mean, I was in high school when Allen Iverson was like huge. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the headband, the cornrows. Our high school basketball coach is like nobody on my team will ever wear cornrows or a headband. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it wow. was it was very wow. it, was, it was that kind of. So I mean, the racialization or the aspects yeah. of racialization, the notion I didn't identify that as anti-blackness yet. Yep. I didn't have that analysis yet. I have it now, and it, it grew on me, especially when I got to uh, my undergraduate institution, Howard University, which is also where I teach now. Okay. I was able to see things. It's like, oh, they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> they shouldn't. Have done right. That. They shouldn't. Have, they shouldn't have given us that message. But it was. It was. It wasn't until later, and then, of course, in terms of the resources and the things of that nature, when I saw how much money went into you know, big time college sports, largely because Howard was not a big time college sport. Yeah, right, uh, right. Sports school. And I'm really I'm realizing, oh, you don't have to take athletics as seriously. <laughs> right. Cause because your vision you're like the yeah. way you had conceived of college prior to coming to Howard was like, oh yeah, sports is a huge part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, that, that's that's great. That's fascinating stuff. So we're, we, I really want to dig into it, partly because, and and I want all of our listeners to read the piece. But you wrote a few years ago now um, a tremendous piece in Catapult uh, called Post Game, and I'm actually going to read some excerpts from it because, um, you know, the way that you articulated sort of your experiences and experiences of your friends and other people that you had known who'd gone through the process of you know playing and working in the context of football. Um, just uh, really incredibly resonated with this, the work that we're trying to do, thinking about what we, ideas we've been calling like structural coercion and ideological coercion in the context of college football, ways in which racial capitalism's denial of access to resources and opportunity, um, which I would say, you know, we could call structural coercion, and also the way in which the sport, especially football, is fetishized within U.S. cultures. It's kind of ideological coercion that um, interpolates people within it. Um, that that really forecloses the capacity of young people to consent in a robust and authentic way to participation in football at its various levels. Um, And I was so struck by this passage you wrote in that piece. You wrote, and I quote now, the sport was everything to me, to us, to we who believed that it could open doors that no other pursuit could. We wanted to win very badly. More, we wanted to ride the wave of football glory out of our very locations in life. We had dreams. We were told that this game could give us a world beyond ours. So we were seduced. Could you elaborate just a bit on that seduction? And if those notions of coercion resonated all with you? Yeah, coercion. Wow. Um, I think it was structural, for sure. Yeah. Um, when we talk about Orangeburg and South Carolina in general, 
when I was growing up, we were last in education. And I don't know what metrics they use, but we were always competing with um, the <laughs> right. state of Mississippi for the 50th ranked state in terms of education. Um, it was a joke that um, one of my fellow South Carolinian a journalists from the upstate South Carolina used to say, you know, you know, first to succeed, last in education. <laughs> mm. um, so first to succeed from the union, of course. <laughs> and right. so, I mean, it's, it's, that's in the background. And which means if you're constantly being told that, I mean, you accept the inferiority to a degree of the academic kind of logics or the academic kind of pursuit. And so I don't think that, my education was necessarily inferior. I just think that it was not necessarily the number one priority. And that's where if you convince athletes that the only reason that you need an education is to remain eligible for for competition, then you'll do what you need to do to remain eligible. And that closes off a lot of different aspects of what an education can be. I mean, even on, even the approach which I don't necessarily believe in, where we focus on getting all A's and grades and things of that nature as somehow success, that mm-hmm. wasn't even on the table, right? <laughs> and so right. let alone the notion of the life of the mind, that's not even that's not even it's not even on the table. It's not even in the house. <laughs> the life of the mind. Yeah. No. And so that's the structural part of it. Um and of course, um there's this idea of glory that I that I mentioned in the piece. Mm-hmm. That was what was desirable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the person who, you know, the individual who was able to play Division One or get a Division One athletic scholarship. We had we had the big man on campus idea ethos in high school. <laughs> so right. that was that was what you wanted to be. Um, but I will say, we sh- I, I wouldn't conflate that with the respect and admiration that we had for people who are involved in athletics. Um, I wouldn't conflate that with the joy and the fun during mm-hmm. athletic competition. I think those two things were separate in many respects. And that's why the seduction is so bad because it traded in that. It traded in that joy yeah. and, and that fun and said, you can translate this yeah. <laughs> into a notion of success and glory that's only obtainable if you if you minimize your other uh, uh, your other interests. <laughs> right? right. It's, and so we worked extremely hard. And you know, I was recently reflecting on this because even before um, the catapult piece uh, res- kind of resurfaced. I don't know how it resurfaced on social media, but it, yeah. it it was actually absurd how much we practiced and how hard we worked in high school in both of my sports. Um, basketball, which I quit after the ninth grade to focus on football. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when I graduated from high school and I started to see like what other kids did when they were in school, Cause I couldn't believe it. It's like that's all you had to do, <laughs> right? Right. So I um right. actually so I compared it with so one of my teammates, several of my teammates went to play, um, in college, um, including four who followed not followed but we all went to Howard together. So I had four of my teammates 
on Howard's football team. Okay. Yeah. Um. So this this didn't occur at Howard. I asked another of my my uh, my teammates at a school, um, a CIAA school, mm-hmm. and how how does how does our practices compare to your practices <laughs> in college? And he said. One of the reasons my coach, my <laughs> my college coach got me to come <laughs> was that he said, if you can survive a practice there, then you can survive a practice at any college. And so wow. I guess I kind of I guess I kind of knew this, too. Um, when I was in my my junior year of high school, I went to a Mark uh, Mark Richt senior camp at the University of Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the, all of the people in my school, we breezed through the workouts. I mean, there were other things that we couldn't compete with, like in terms, they, they, they put us through like a combine. So yeah. my 40 time wasn't going to be the 40 time of some division. But in terms of the actual strenuousness of the workout, we breezed through it to such an extent that I thought, oh, why are they taking it so easy on us? Right. Wow. But I knew they. But I realized they couldn't have been taking it easy because the stakes were too high for them. They needed to see who could actually go through this and on at this level. And so I'm I'm realizing right. there's this this is where the this might be where the inferiority the other level of the inferiority complex comes up, right? We have to work harder on the football field at this particular high school. And so yeah. I mean there's so many different examples. I mean um conditioning. One of my one of the most egregious examples that I realized was probably abuse. Now, is that yeah. on Sundays? First of all, we had to come in on Sundays. I don't think anybody does that <laughs> in high school. <laughs> right in high school, I know in high school. Yeah. So on Sunday <laughs> afternoons, we will we would have film sessions. You know, the other religion is Christianity. I mean, the Bible, right? right? <laughs> And I'm, and, I, and I'm saying the other religion because football is the is the is the number one religion in the South. It's not Christianity, but the other religion. And so they they post, they scheduled it right after church for, for most of us that went to church. And so we're in there, in you know, church <laughs> church clothes, watching film, and at some uh, at one at some point, they our coaches got so upset at a, at us. Yeah that they made us go on the field and in your clothes, in your church. Yeah. 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 And and run sprints for every penalty that we made that game. Wow. And after that Sunday evenings became, I think they call it balancing the scale. It was some kind of thing they came up with (laughs) (laughs) basically saying that this is how we get rid of penalties during the game. So, I think one one game we had fifteen penalties, so we had to run. I forget what it was, but I know it was full length sprints that yeah. we had to run under a certain time. And so Sundays became. Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could re- remember the the metaphor that they used. It was something like balancing the scales. And so yeah. this is like completely absurd. Now that I think about it. Yeah. And that's before practice on Monday, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> and so we only the only day off that we actually had was Saturdays. Um, and this is college. This, I mean, this is not this is high school football. No, this is high school. This is I high know. School and football. You, you so know, I mean, me think, yeah. Oh, go on, yeah, go on. So I'm, I'm thinking. I'm. I'm reason. I'm, the reason I'm saying all of that is that we all bought into it because 
This is what we were told. This is how you escape. And you had to be really, really committed. And it's not about just winning the games. It's, it's about, quote unquote, being the best. And they were also adding, this is how you become a man into it too, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, of we course. have seen it. Yeah. And so we have seen all the people that went through this system sort of emerged. I mean, Woodrow Dantzler was the great icon from our high school, the quarterback from Clemson that broke all those records. Uh-huh. Um, Tim Jennings, the cornerback from the University of Georgia that goes on to the Chicago Bears, Indianapolis Colts. He was he was a senior my freshman year. And so we had all of the examples. And yeah. if they went through it, okay, we can go through it. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me what you were saying is because you started, you started with this sort of point that, that part of it is the joy, right? Like that something happens where there's this slippage. That's the part of the seduction is the slippage between this thing that is pleasure and then that can become opportunity, right? And so like mm-hmm. what would be more desirable than this thing that you feel all this investment in and you get all this satisfaction and joy from? Of course right. you want to make that your life's work, right? And then have opportunity that emerges out of that. Right. But then everything you described after that was brutal labor, essentially. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, so where, like, where does that, how does it, when does the transition happen and how do you experience that? That's why, because, you know, I never played, I played a lot of sports. I loved sports myself, you know, and I had, you know, I guess my dreams were probably dashed fairly early, but I still had investments, you know, like winning in high school still mm-hmm. mattered to me a lot um, mm-hmm. just for itself. Uh, I never, but I never played football. I played ba- basketball was my number one as well. And I, I mm-hmm. cared deeply with basketball. Um, but like, how do, in terms of how you experienced that, like where, when did the transition happen between pleasure and work? And was there a moment in high school where like, you know, especially when you said, well, your dreams kind of at a certain point you realized, right. You weren't yeah. going to go and make a professional career or maybe and not even a college career. Did it become too much at some point? Did like, did you lose the joy or did you somehow retain it through all that? Oh, absolutely. I lost it because oh, yeah, they, I, and I'm, I'm actually very thankful, thankful for that now. Um, mm-hmm. because I was on a trajectory to play college sports. Um, I was pretty much, um, I played running back and I okay. was going to, I was, I oh, was, boy. yeah, I was the featured back my sophomore year for much of the, the preseason. Uh, and that's when people got to get a look at me. Yeah. Um, now that year, we had some injuries and the injured players came back. And so um, I went back and was the, was, was the backup and I played a lot on JV that year, but that it was, it was a, it was a foregone conclusion that the following year was, which is my junior year. Um, I was going to be a feature back in like a pro style, I formation type <laughs> type system yep. where you yep. get, you know, 20, 25 touches a game. Right. And, you know, I had shown, that, you know, I could easily average over 100 yards and probably be looking, to, looking for more than that um, every game. Um, and so I was, I was set in that sense. Um, of course, the coaches wanted me to do more, to work out harder and, you know, be more committed. I'm, I'm also having fun in, in high school, right? Sure. Um, but there was a coaching change that year. And because of that coaching change, there was a completely different system. And this this coach ran the triple option. 
I was so upset. Oh. <laughs> I was so upset. <laughs> yeah. Because now I have to share the the the, the Russian responsibilities with four other people. Right. Um and that's when we were rushing. I mean, most of the time, you know. Um, so after that happened, it's like, okay, nobody's gonna see, <laughs> you know, not gonna be a featured back then. And that was that was a that was a rough transition for me because we were a better team, but it, the whole part about you know going to the next level became <laughs> became became yeah. more became more fraught, and yeah, it was it was a blessing in disguise because by my senior year, I kind of withdrew myself. I stayed on the team, mm-hmm. um, but. I, my heart wasn't in it by that point. And that was after going to um, University of Georgia, the senior camp. That was after, mm-hmm. you know, doing all that stuff and seeing other people go to the next level. Something clicked my senior year, and it was like, these people are kind of absurd. In fact, I think what made it click, um, I won a National Merit Scholarship, completely uh-huh. unplanned. <laughs> I didn't even know. Yeah. I didn't even know that this, you know, was going to happen. Um, they didn't. They didn't even tell us that the PSAT was the test that qualified you for the National Merit Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm taking the PSAT because I need to practice for the SAT because the SAT yep. is one of the barriers <laughs> for getting a college football scholarship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. I lucked up and did well on the test, <laughs> and you know. After that, I'm on a I'm on a track for national merit, and so I had you know a coach, God rest his soul, tell us that, yeah, that don't mean nothing, and I'm like, wait a minute, mm. <laughs> mm. yeah, I'm about to get an academic scholarship, and you're telling me that doesn't mean anything, and then the head coach says, I mean, I, I remember this like, I remember this like it was yesterday. And by the way, this coach is not as hard as the other one that was doing all the, you know, the Sunday, the Sunday running. Oh, really? So, I mean, so it's it's also that, um, you know, he let us wear our hair anyway that we wanted to wear our hair. But there was still this mentality. And so he said, he said in the huddle after practice one day. And I quote, I remember this directly. He said, if you don't want to play college sports, college football then you don't need to be on this team. Mm. Wow. And I'm like, oh, so you're saying that any other achievement, because it's going around now that, you know, I'm a national merit, blah, 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 blah. You know, mm-hmm. I'm getting I'm getting full scholarship offers, full rat scholarship academic offers, like the whole season. <laughs> I had an offer from University of Florida, University of Tennessee. Ironically, the places that you would love to go if you were a football player. Football? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm sitting with the full scholarship academically, and they're like, yeah. we don't know what to do with that. And so I'm like, okay. I stayed on the team because there's social capital. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I withdraw. Um, I took myself out of playing. Um, and so I didn't I didn't play for the second half of my senior year. Um, I still dressed out. I stood on the sideline with everybody else, but I didn't play purposely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it was it was their reaction to me having academic success that made me realize that hey, something is off here. 
Um, and so it was it was more it was more so youthful rebelliousness and also me succeeding in a way that they thought that I should not be able to succeed in and showing them, hey, I didn't need you to get here. <laughs> It was right. it was it was that kind of rebelliousness. It wasn't a critique of racial capitalism. <laughs> no, 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 no. I hear you. <laughs> it, was, it was it was just rebellion, and that was something that I think was necessary for me because it just opened up my thinking. It opened yeah. up, you know, my concept of you know what was possible, and yeah, it it, it that rebellion came as a consequence of forces that I didn't plan. I didn't necessarily try to seek out. It just happened, and I'm so glad that it happened because I don't know if I had stayed invested. I don't know what my mm-hmm. life would have been. Um, because I don't. I mean, I I, I might have could have walked on somewhere, maybe. Sure. Yeah. And I know I would if I if I stayed invested, I would have tried to do that. But I'm glad that break happened because it allowed me to step away from the act of playing. And that just changed my life. Yeah, no, that that's powerful. And and, and I, I actually want to come back to the to to your your catapult piece because it, it connects directly with the stuff we've been talking about here. So I just want to 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 get even more of what you had to say um, in that one. You said they only wanted my brothers for their labor, their legs, arms, their bodies. Their minds were superfluous. They only needed to master duties that were useful between sidelines. The only position that required thinking was closed to many of them. Just run, just jump, just use your hands. Do you have good hands? But most of all, hit. Hit them so hard that the ball comes loose. Hit them so hard they fear coming across the middle. Hit them so hard that they think twice about running towards you. Push forward comes the war cry. Do not give an inch. That is what we want you to do. So we can win and you can achieve glory and your masters can make profits. I mean, like mm-hmm. that resonates with everything you've been describing here mm-hmm. as you've been kind of fleshing it out further. And, and so I want to know from your perspective, is there anything redeemable about big time college football? Can it be genuinely compatible with education? Can it be something other than raw exploitation? No. That's what makes it big time. It's, it is the exploitation, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I think we're, we're too far gone now. It it should all be abolished, and that would save so many lives. I think I really I really do believe that. Um, so it's it's not redeemable, and I'm and I'm saying that now with more data than I had when I was a yeah. player. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, oh my goodness. It's, yeah, it's and I think it's gotten worse. I think it's the exploitation aspect has gotten much worse. Um, you know, I played my last game in two thousand and four, um, mm-hmm. and what we it's 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 much worse. The recruiting starts much earlier. The I mean, what does it mean to be recruited in, in middle school and know that you know for the next six years of my life, seven, five or six years of my life, I don't have to do anything but but play football. And you're thirteen, fourteen years old, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean your brain isn't even fully developed yet, but football is the route. I mean, it's, it's absurd. And so I think this system has to go. It just has to go. Yeah. And I, when you said that you were like, I didn't realize you were running back. Um, mm-hmm. just thinking about talk about positions where you take so much punishment, right? Like, yes. Uh, <laughs> and they want you to, the fact, they want you to take the punishment. They want you to run over people. 
<laughs> right? Right. Oh, yes. You're supposed to seek yes. the contact. And I wasn't, I wasn't even my style. My style was to avoid contact. No, they want you to, no, run over this person. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking that half season of harm you saved yourself, like the amount of damage. But yeah. that could have had life, like on top of everything else, you talk about the trajectory of your life in ways right. that I think are more profound. But like, you know, there could be life-changing implications just for not having hits for that number that number of games yeah um oh yeah yeah that's that's really wild um okay well here's here's another because i think you've been getting at this i was going to ask you about the harm but actually you've been you've been getting at all these various forms of harm and especially there you were talking about you know the the, the, the physical harm the mental harm the, the harm in terms of the ways in which the system like forecloses possibilities for people right? right like that that's part of i think what you're getting at there it's like you, you're literally being taught that you know, this is, there's only one opportunity. It's not only the U.S. It's like part of it is like racial capitalism literally says based on the way in which resources are distributed, right. that there are no other opportunities available because that's yeah. part of it, right? And yeah. your school itself is under-resourced because of racial capitalism. Right. But then on top of that, you're like, you're actively being told mm-hmm. that you can't have these other things, that you shouldn't have these other things. And it still happens at college. You know, mm-hmm. college football players we talked to who were played at big-time schools, even at schools that were like, you know, private universities in the Power Five, right? The kind of places that in this sort of, in the utopian version that the NCAA sells of what yes. college sports is, right? Oh, everything's working. These are student athletes in the purest sense. Sure. And we still heard in that context, right? Like coaches are saying, we want you to fail so you can get another year of eligibility. Yes. Or you're getting A's in class. That means you're not spending enough time on football. Right. Um, so it, it, it never stops, right? Um, right. I don't know. Anyway, it, it, it's just, it, it's, it's powerful to think about, um, it's a form of like, it's, it's a form of abuse, not just to the body, but like to your identity, right. To, to prevent you from thinking you can be something other than a football player. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, so as far as physical harm, yeah, I know I've had many concussions, um, mm. both M I N I many and M A N Y many. Um, yeah. I never, I, I've never, you know, missed a game because of them. Right. Um, but even like just beyond me, right? I you know, I I know for I know at least one family member played for Clemson in the maybe nineties, eighties or nineties okay. mm-hmm. that actually passed away from an old football related oh. injury. Um, according to my mother, who speculates about it, um, this sure. was yeah. the, the rough Terrible. and tumble, the tumble, rough and tumble era. You know, not only was the same mentality of a play to you, play hurt, but also you know, we're not going to give you adequate medical care either. Um, yeah. It also, so just in my community, um, you probably heard the story of Philip Adams. Um, yes. But go on, please do the last yeah. though. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't know him, but I knew many of my former teammates were, were his teammates. Um, so those stories hit me a lot when I see them and it's, it's so tragic because, you know, with him, he was the nicest person according to, according to their recollection and their memories, Mm. which means, I mean, not to, you know, not that everyone has to be innocent. Right. But the shock was that how could football do this to his brother? Right. And that's right. no, something absolutely. that, you know, we had, 
Dwayne Harper was a was former NFL player was our was one of our coaches one year and he brought a lot of NFL people around and you could see you could see it you could see you could see their sense of of having achieved this glory but also something happened to you too mm-hmm. and um for various reasons and you know several of our coaches um died within 10 years of of me graduating from wow. dif- from different from different you know tragic incidents some were, some were accidents some were you know health related but it all feels like it's connected because we went through we like that whole war metaphor like we went through this together right yeah and it's almost like coming home from war and seeing people die from the effects later on that's how right. it, that's how it wow. felt that's how it felt when yeah. when we saw our coaches some of our coaches pass away and then of course you know the sad part is all the physical we're not going to see it for a number of years on, on our bodies and that's that's what gets it's really scary um and these stories are the stories that are not going to hit the news like my cousin that played for no. Clemson that didn't make the news at all. Um, you know, and it's because of the, it's because of the fanaticism in some respects. Um, that's, that's just, you know, in the South where, you know, we don't need to talk about that. The game is going to, I mean, we're going to, we're going to, we need to go to the game. (laughs) And it's, it's like, no, this, this is actually hurting us. It's hurting our communities. It's hurting. I mean, it's, it's, and again, it's because we haven't really documented everything yet that the full weight of it hasn't really been revealed yet. But I, I know that it exists. I know that the, that the physical harm over years, over the years, because I only played four years of high school and I and I have. It. So if you play college and you play, right. I mean, it's 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 hard to even contemplate. Um. Did you start? Did you start to recognize that? Because you're you're talking about like what you saw in your coaches, and I'm I'm kind of curious if that's just the power of retrospect now, where obviously you have tremendous insight into what happened. Yeah. Or even as a high schooler, were you kind of getting like a weird feeling, like that you were seeing something in them that was like we would say, oh, they're disconcerting you. Yeah. We would just kind of joke, kind of play it off, like, oh, they're crazy, like because they. I mean, okay. You could see, you could see, like, yeah, something happened to you. Right. Like one one day mm-hmm. one of my coaches that played in the NFL just cursed out the head coach for no reason and then walked off the field and to 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 teenagers, oh that's hilarious. But no, this is a right. mental health crisis. Right. <laughs> right? Yes. I yes. mean that same coach, uh I think one 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 time and he's passed away since he was he was much older. I think one day somebody asked for water which is like a sin during this era of, oh. of, of, of oh, South Carolina God. in, in <laughs> South Carolina can, I, you know I'm in North Carolina so I kind of I have an idea it's even worse than South Carolina <laughs> you don't ask you don't ask for water so I mean yeah. and again this is this is categorically abusive he goes to the water table and I think he like flips it over and he says y'all don't need no water wow <laughs> God. <laughs> the absurdity, right? And so yes. we're being obviously abused, but we're laughing too because this is actually kind of kind of funny. Um right. 
But now it's like, wait a minute. What makes someone deprive? <laughs> this yes. is not about toughness. This is, no, you're actually having some kind of... Something happened to you <laughs> that made you yeah. want to do this to somebody else. This is classic abusive, oh, abuser behavior. Um... I'm probably getting the story wrong, but it, it was it it has some kind of it has something like that, and and when those stories keep accumulating, um, I think we actually had one one coach who was actually a, a cocaine addict. Okay, and this yeah. is and this is also based on the science that we saw. Yeah, so it it was it was hard to not laugh. As as teenagers, but now when we see it, it's like, oh, this is how they cope with everything that happens. And all and all of our coaches played college. That was like a, re- a prerequisite. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's wow. Just even thinking about it now, it's like I'm looking. I'm trying to remember instances of, oh, that was a sign, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. We didn't see everything, but we we now have a better better lens on it. It's not just that they were crazy. No, 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 absolutely. Um, okay, well, you know, I, I don't want, I'm not, maybe I won't, because you're, you're, you're just, you're giving us so much great um, stuff here that I, I'm not going to read at length this, for the, this next passage that I plan to, but I still want to get at the, the idea. So um, one thing that I think a lot about in my work, I try to get at is the relationship between athletic labor as a kind of form of social reproduction and fandom as a form of imagined community. And the way there's a kind of connection that occurs between um, the athletic labor and then what it does for fans and how that sort of fits within capitalism more broadly. Mm-hmm. And I think what you've been getting at here throughout, you, you know, you, you said this in, in characterizing it even as like the, as the primary religion in the South, right? Yes. Football. There's a way in which it's like what have it, it goes beyond the field, right? Everything that's happening on the yes. field is fueling this society and this culture. Um, I guess I'm curious on how accountable you hold fans for the harms that occur in football. Um, you know, and, and this accountability may well not be equal given the differential positions of fans within racial capitalism itself and also in relation to the game, right? I mean, obviously, we, we can't make absolute generalizations. Right. But, like, unlike when even when you were playing and before that when your coaches were playing, like, there's a lot of information now, right? Like, we, mm-hmm. we don't have all the information, mm-hmm. but we have a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And yet the kind of culture around the game really hasn't changed very dramatically at all, I wouldn't say, especially in the South, in the kind of communities that you're talking about yeah. having grown up in, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. How do, how do you process that now as a, almost a political and ethical question? Yeah. So we used to go to Power 5 games, uh, being so close okay. to the University of South Carolina and, and sometimes Clemson and yeah, I've been to several other power five schools and it's hard not to hold those fans accountable. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's hard, okay. Okay. you know, yeah. because it's, it's a, it's a clear, the depth of their investment in not thinking about the implications of this, of this game, the, the, their insistence on not only defending the power brokers, but also investing the power brokers with, with the ammunition that they need to perpetuate the exploitation, right? Mm-hmm. They're not withdrawing anything. In fact, they're doing the opposite. The more we know, the harder they lean in. Yes. So that's yes. something that's clear, and it's it's particularly in 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 sport of football, um, and you know basketball too. The basketball has their 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 the same sort of investments. Um, yes, it does. Yeah, in football, it's just so egregious. I mean, it's go to a 
go to a power of high school campus and you, you clearly see that, you know, this is, this is what we are about um, on a Saturday. And, and it's so funny because I've been at Howard as a professor for eight years and as a student for four years. And Saturdays are like the quietest time, <laughs> even on game days, right. even on game yeah, yeah. days, which is like, great. It's like, yes. Um, so it's hard. And, and as a fan, I feel accountable. Um, I feel that I couldn't have a critique and still consume. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't, con- cause that's the way, that's the way that we, it's, it's about spectacle. Spectacle requires spectators. Yes. Um, and so, and it's, it's funny because I started with the NFL in terms of my withdrawing. Right. Um, yep. and, it, and it was a conclusion that I came to before the Kaepernick situation. Um, in fact, the catapult piece that came out, I think weeks maybe before, um, the Kaepernick situation. Right. Of um, course. Yeah. 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 So it was when I saw, you know, over the year that, you know, Kaepernick takes the knee, first he sits down, then he takes the knee and then right, he yeah. goes, um, there's an attempt to sort of boycott. It made it, it was easier for me because I'd already withdrawn before that happened. Um, uh-huh. because the NFL's problems are so severe and they're painfully yeah. obvious. College sports was harder for me because I came from the HBCU world. And that's, that's yeah. something that speaks to the, the, it's a, it's nostalgia. It's also community in a very real way. And so mm-hmm. Orangeburg is also the home of South Carolina State University, which is not big time uh-huh. college athletics, but don't tell them that. so it's it's treated it's treated the same but it's also the marching band it's the tailgate it's all of those other aspects that feel like home so to sort of say well no more football it's like oh well what 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 will we have and so that's something that's 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 powerful and at the same time philip adams went to south carolina state right Wow. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what is our responsibility? What can we have? Right. And I don't, and I don't think you can, I just think that, you know, we know too much now that we can't continue to continue to do this. Um, so that, that nostalgia that we have, it's going, it, that's going away anyway. Right. I mean, the world is changing neoliberal era. Yeah. You know, HBCU football is not going to be what we wanted wanted it to be in the '90s, or what we felt it was in the, in the '80s and the '90s. Uh, schools yeah. like Hampton, North Carolina A and T are leaving. Um, you know, the HBCU athletic conferences. Howard wants to leave too, and they're leaving because there's more prestige in these other, or they think there's more prestige in these other uh-huh. um, athletic conferences. Which, of course, is them trying to mirror the Power Five. It's, that's that's yeah. every, everybody. If you're not power five, you want to be, right? There's no right. there's no anti power five logic, right. right? Everybody who is not wants to be. They desire entrance, and now the HBCUs they desire entrance in many respects, which is really what this whole you know Deion Sanders coming to Jackson State is about. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I went to my first game in like eleven years, my first football game on any level in like eleven years. Uh, this past December, and it was the Celebration Bowl. I wanted to see if there was something to be uh, salvageable. (laughs) 
Yeah. Deion Sanders, yeah. Jackson State, and what he's done for Jackson State, and playing uh, my hometown, our hometown, South Carolina State University. And in terms of the actual sport and competition, it was a good game, but it didn't feel mm-hmm. like what I expected it to feel like. And so it'll probably be another 10 years, you know, if we, if we don't abolish everything. It'll probably be another 10 yeah. before I go to another game because what I was thinking I was going to feel no longer exists anymore. And that's something as a fan, you know, I wasn't 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I, I never would have predicted. But I reached a point where I've moved past any love for the, for the game of football. And I'm not, I'm not expecting other fans to get to that point. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that they do. I just don't expect it to happen anytime soon. Um, but at the very least, if you enjoy the game, you should be doing everything that you can, using every leverage that you have to ensure that it's at least more, more safe. Um, yeah. You know, we should also consider creating an actual amateur system. Um, right. So that people have somewhere to go um, with their love and their, you know, their skills, right? Fans yeah. should be supporting that those kinds of systems instead of mm-hmm. actually caping for, you know, the athletic directors of these power five schools every time they get in trouble or wanting a better coach <laughs> because somehow, you know, a higher paid coach is better for the better for the system, meaning even though it means more exploitation of the system. These are exactly, and and if you care about the pageantry, I know people care about that part, right? You know, I think mm-hmm. this is beautiful. We'd be out here with all these people, and just make the players full time workers, right? Right. These are at least proposals for me, at the very least. But I do think in my heart that the industry itself has to be abolished, and you know that's the only way that we get a sense of, of fairness and justice out of it. Um, yeah. Now. I say this also as a as a huge fan of baseball, a sport I never played, by the way. Ah, okay, okay, but interesting. Yeah, it's a sport that has many problems, right? And yep. so, yeah, I know what it's like <laughs> to not be to not be able to fully withdraw, right? I watch every, right. you know, as, as, I watch every game of my team, yep. right? But at the same time, I'm not going to be caught dead defending the owners. <laughs> no, I'm not going to defend Rob Manfred, which is what. The football folks, the football fans, have been convinced it's necessary to do. We got to support right. everybody, right, against right. every critique. Because exactly. we think that any critique means that this thing, right, might collapse. So we're going to ignore CTE. We're going to ignore domestic violence. We're going to ignore racial violence. We're going to ignore all these problems. You know, we're going to apply when Jay-Z, you know, creates this concert, you know, and we're going to do all the things that the NFL, the NCAA actually wants us to accept in order to perpetuate the exploitation that's at the heart of this. And so if you're going to be a fan, at the very least, be critical. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I mean, and it, and it is hard. You know, I, I feel this in my own fandoms, you know, which I certainly do not perform publicly because mm-hmm. I think that's part of the politics we're talking about here. Right. Like right. there's only to a certain extent we are, we're human beings and we have subjective investments that come from years before we've developed the insights we might carry with us now. Right. And the political mm-hmm. analysis and, and the ethics and everything else. And like, you know, you just you can't 
<laughs> eliminate all of those pleasures and investments like they can't go away but you can certainly choose how you perform yourself in the world right and how you align yourself right in the political right. interests you have um and so so I, I completely get what you're saying there uh, and i and i i do i i never played football of course like as we said but i i did i certainly liked this like i loved watching the sport right i had mm-hmm. like fan investments but mm-hmm. like you football is really the one sport that i've i've I would say genuinely extricated myself from. Yeah. And that I, I can't watch it now without right. seeing the harm. You right. Know what I mean, especially, and I would say this, you turn the sound off when you're watching a game, if you're watching on TV mm-hmm. and it's different because like the, they're always trying to misdirect, right? Like mm-hmm. the way that they frame everything that happens minimizes the harm and the violence. Yes. But like, if you, if you just see the images and if you slow those down in slow motion and you see, just watch the line, right? Don't yeah. look at the ball for a second. Just watch the members of the line slamming into each other. And it's, it's grotesque, right? In a way, because yeah. it's just, it's so yeah. grievous. When I went to the game in December, there were points I had to look away. And I've, I've yeah. never had that reaction before. Because right. I don't, it was just, and you know, I'm watching the other fans and it's like, yeah, go team. And I'm like, no, I can't <laughs> I had to look away and they were they were they were hitting i mean it was oh yeah i guess being away from it for so long you know i forgot yeah but that's being, right seeing it live again it's like wow yeah because you get defamiliarized that's exactly it right it's not normalized anymore. that's that's the experience i had too it's you have to go away for a while and then come back mm-hmm. and it it doesn't read the same way Right. And it just shows you the extent to which it's been normalized for us as this thing, right? That's we yeah. celebrate. But like without that, it doesn't actually really align with other things that we do on a day-to-day yes. basis, right? And consider acceptable. Yes. Um you know, another thing you brought up though, I, I really I actually wanted to hit on. I wasn't planning to, but I, I forgot and then remembered as you were talking that Howard is actually in its in its approach to basketball is one of these institutions that seems to be changing a little bit, right? Like Howard is trying to play with the big fish when it comes to recruitments in basketball. Um, and I, is that something, are you noticing a change on your campus? Like, are, are you, are you feeling something sort of uncomfortable happening there? So it's, it's, it's hard because we've been away from campus for so long. Oh, true. And true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I went to, I've been, to, I, so over this past semester, I think I went to one game and that was, yeah. yeah. I just happened to be on campus working and there was a game going on. I just wanted to see what it felt like. And that one game I went to, and I don't know if there were other mitigating circumstances. It could have been Greek night or it could have been organization. <laughs> right, right. It could have been some, but it, I've never seen our gym packed for um, just a regular game. And this is, yeah. this is I'm 12 years of being associated with Howard. Right. And, I think there is. I think there is a change. Um, the coach, um, what is his name? Coach Blakeman, I think. Um, he went to Duke. He's a coach. Ah. He's a Coach K person. <laughs> okay. Okay. I know something about that environment. Yeah. Okay. Go on. <laughs> um, and it's also, what's the major? This is Damatha, one of the major high schools in the area. Yeah, so he's, sure, DeMatha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Duke and DeMatha. Okay, okay. And so all of his staff are associated somehow with one of those two schools. So I think Mike Bray uh, was mm. close to him. Okay. Uh, the coach of Notre Dame. And, yeah. And 
during the shortened season, they were supposed to go to Notre Dame. And Bray said, well, I want my kids to, to experience the HBCU. And so they decided to come to Howard, and they played over MLK weekend. And it was actually a, a pretty well-contested game. Howard almost won, in fact. Um, I mean, it came down to the last shot. And that sort of was supposed to, and I think it did, it put the program um, on the national map again. It was, it was broadcast not on national television, of course. Um, and so it was supposed to showcase, you know, the shifted power. And of course we had the, uh, the top draft or what they thought was going to be a top draft pick, um, McCourt maker come. And it was a terrible experience, I think for him, um, mm. largely due to COVID, but I think there were some other factors too. Um, okay. and so the question is, does Howard have, you know, the, Howard has the name recognition, but but does it have the other other resources that would make this a space where people like Maker would be attracted to come? Um, yeah. And I think that I think the jury's still out, but I think that's their vision, that's their plan, which is the plan for every other unit on campus right. <laughs> to right, make to make make university more marketable, attractive to capital, which is something yeah. that. You know, a few of us have been resisting to the hilt. So, um, of course, yeah, <laughs> it's funny because I should, you know, we should actually talk probably talk about this in African American studies. There was somebody, maybe it was a, and this is another point because some there are many good people in athletics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure, yep. on the staff yep. level, particularly at these schools, on the coach, any even on the coaching level, but somehow someone at Howard you know, figured out how to get that early class, that summer class that they take in order to get ahead, which is, of course has mm-hmm. other rationale. <laughs> yep. But they got us to teach the class in African-American studies, one of the classes. Okay. So okay. every summer. I've taught last... in those classes too, Josh. I just want yeah. to say, I, to, I've taught those summer classes, so uh-huh. I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. I'm interested to hear what you're going to say. Yeah. So every summer for the last three years, we teach this class, and it's it's, a, it's the the class is modeled after a similar class that we teach for the for the early STEM students. So we have a STEM mm-hmm. program um, yep. where you know all the kids who have four and perfect SATs come to Howard, and they yep. put them in STEM. And so they yep. do a summer program for them, but they 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 somehow we got the athletics people <laughs> on that same track. And so we teach the okay. same exact course for both. Ah, interesting. And yep. it's team taught. So they get the best of our department. Oh wow. Um each of us each of us takes a week. And what and what we've done is we've tried to shift their perception of why they're here. Mm-hmm. And so right in the middle, when was it? 2021? I can't remember what year it was now. Twenty twenty yeah, last year. The NIL thing happens. No, it's 2020. Yes. It's 2020. And you can imagine the conversation we had. Because they came yeah. in with every expectation that, hey, this ain't for us, blah, blah. And we sort of shift the conversation with with that. And we also shifted it when the Supreme Court, was it Supreme Court? 
or the National Relations Labor Board. I can't remember. Well, both, both, both. Around Everything. the unions. <laughs> yeah. All of the above. Yeah, unions, so, the NLRB memo. Yeah, in September, yeah. the NLRB So that came out during yeah. the summer too, I think. And so we were having these robust conversations with them from an African, African-American studies perspective at an HBCU. And it is yeah. clear that whoever decided they were either doing those students a huge favor or they didn't know what they were getting them into. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. That, that class completely, we hoped, we hope shifts the meter of the conversations that they would experience for the next in four years. But the beauty about it is it's not just the football team. So it's, it's the basketball teams, both men and women, mm-hmm. and yep. it's the women's volleyball team. Our women's volleyball team not only is great, they are some of the most academically prepared student athletes I've ever witnessed in my whole career. Every yeah. year. It's almost as if this they recruited for this. Yeah. And so anytime there's a the thing that I'm critiquing in, in the essay <laughs> that comes up in mm-hmm. that class, it's one of the mm-hmm. women volleyball players that says, wait a minute. You're not thinking about this. You're not thinking about that. And it, it creates, the, it, it, it shifts the conversation. And it's a beautiful thing yeah. that happens in that, in that moment. And so I think if, you know, those, those of us who want to sort of have a different relationship and a different conversation at Howard can continue to influence these athletes in that way, then it does make a difference, you know, pending abolition. It does make a difference, yes, yes. right, in terms of what they get uh, from a higher education. And, yeah, you know, it, it's, for me, I would want that to be unavoidable. I would want it to be structural rather than what it feels like, which is, this happened on accident. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's that's a great point. And maybe it's, that's a good thing for us to kind of, to conclude on, because I was what I wanted to sort of think about as as, a, as an ending note was notions around like reparations potentially um, in the context of football specifically, because you know I think that one aspect of um, the question of abolition, which I agree with you on wholeheartedly, is you have all these folks, as you know as well or better than anyone, who have invested so much of themselves in football, right? So if there was a moment of abolition. What does it mean for those investments, right? What has already been given up? And it seems to me like there, there has to be, like, in the way, you know, sure, we have the concussion settlement, as you could argue, is like a, a kind of form of reparation, but like in the NFL. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. way, way, way less than anyone deserves. Um, yeah. And deeply racialized, profoundly, through the race norming policies, like yes. disgustingly racist. Yes. I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not apologizing for it, but I just, as a sort of gesture in the, towards that. But we need right. to see so much more, right? And our universe, like, if you think about all the parties that would be required to participate in those reparations, the NFL is just a starting point. ESPN is on that list, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, each of these universities, and then what's happening in high school, I mean, just like, you just go on down the line. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And then, you know, Olafemi Taiwo has written about constructivist notions of reparations in addition mm-hmm. to compensatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, a, you know, to me, a, a great insight. And, I, and I, that's what I was hearing when you were talking about what was happening at Howard a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Like ways of conceiving of a new future for sport and higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, because I agree with you. It's like right now, I feel like in the current model, we do have really bright spot moments that occur. You just described one at Howard beautifully. It's like you were essentially engaging in a kind of consciousness raising workshop, 
mm-hmm. for athletes early in their experience, right? Mm-hmm. Within this system. Um, that is promising. And, and I've mm-hmm. seen that at Duke, but it's like in my own class, like that's what my classes are. You know, I teach labor of sport mm-hmm. um, in first year writing seminars at Duke. Mm-hmm. And my classes are filled with athletes, right? Because they don't have very many opportunities to take sports related classes at Duke. And so, you know, naturally they want to take a class. They, writing 101 is a mandatory course. They want to take a class on sport. And then we're having these exact conversations in class. And it's at the beginning of their experience. And it's exciting, right? Um, but like it's also so contradictory to the mission of what the university um, wants right. in this moment, and right. like you, you do get the feeling. I don't. And I, I, I kind of got that from what you were saying too. You get the feeling that if like certain people really knew that that was happening, right. <laughs> that it might not be happening any longer. Right? Oh yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I just any final thoughts on sort of like how we get to a better place? <laughs> if that makes so, sense. I think. We also have to abolish the way we do higher ed too, right? Yeah, well, there you go. So, yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> I mean, that's right. So, what is what, what's a model of actual education, right? That's yeah. not driven by markets. That's not driven by greed. It's not driven by real estate interest and all of the things that universities care right. about. Community, a community, a actual communal model of education will also be, I think, you know, lead us to lead us to repair. Um, so I think we have to seriously question not just college athletics, but, but higher education in general. And if we put if we have those things happening at the same time, I think we have a, a clearer analysis of where to go. Um, so that's what I that's also what I teach, right? What What does it look like to have an undercommons experience, or you know, a different relationship to the university? Mm-hmm. Um. Healthcare to me is, is a big part of this. So yes. it should be a big part of any reparations kind of movement. And there's so many things to repair. But I think the first thing is healthcare. Um, you know, these students, they go through so much. I mean, even in that class that I was mentioning, it's a it's it's a it's a pedagogical struggle. The class is at nine AM in the morning. They practice before they come. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. Before they eat, even. Yeah. So, they practice, come to class, and then eat. And so, how much of how much can you do? And so, yeah. that's right. No, um, really, these, it's a real question, right? Yeah. yeah. If people are falling asleep in your class, right. that's not because of their own like lack of. You know, they're not. not, It's not that they're not trying hard enough. It's not a a personal failing. Like the system is making it impossible for them to keep their eyes open. Absolutely. So I think you know, we know that that that's rooted in the harm, the the sort of things that need to be addressed by adequate, um, you know, healthcare systems, and also so many of these students, they don't get big check at the end of. They don't get the prize, right? And I'm thinking right. now about all the athletic programs who think that they, who, whose coaches think that they are on the same level, <laughs> who treat their students the same. I'm thinking about like the softball team at Howard, which is a great program, but the coach, mm-hmm. you know, is very demanding. I remember having a student who was concerned about meeting their course obligations because of practice times and all the things. And in the back of my head, Softball, right. yeah, softball. Because you can't convince the people that you know who are coaches that it's not quote unquote less important, right? And so, 
but we know that because of the unequal systems in terms of pay with women and all of the things that go into that, that there's not going to be a huge prize for them. They're playing this for the yep. love of the game. Most. <laughs> so yep. um, how do you, how do, what's reparations for them? Right. Because they're going right. through the same thing. So-called, you know, bigger sports are going through and we know there's less, a less likely prize. And so we got to figure out how to make whatever reparations looks like equal across all the sports because all the sports, even, even, you know, Howard has club sports where this is the same kind yep. of thing. And I, I don't know what to do with that model. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, right. but it's, it's, we have to figure out in a reparatory mo- reparations moment, what it looks like to not just focus on the quote unquote, big time people. Um, because if you play at all, if you play it at all, you will have the same effects that, that people who play um, at the highest levels have. So that's something that I think I hope we don't lose sight of as well, which means the intervention has to be huge. It has to be huge, yes. has to be systematic. It can't be voluntary. I mean, it's all of those things. Yeah. Um, and also, I think um, if we can imagine an education, education system that's actually generated around what the community needs, it also means we have to do something that the university has never been able to. Which means also that we should be, if we can do the former, we should be able to imagine an athletics program that does no harm. And I think about That's that right. in the context of how, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, one of my mentors is from Trinidad, and the way that he talks about sports is completely different than the way that we talk about sports. It's actually a part of education. <laughs> it's actually a part of human development in a sense. It's actually a part of the culture. Right. There's no market-driven exploitation in the exactly. way that he explains it. He, and he grew up in Trinidad in the, in the war years, right? 1940s. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it opened my eyes, right? Of course, reading like C.R.R. James's Beyond the Boundary. Exactly, exactly. Oh, yep. there's, a, there's a difference, the way, he, the way that he explained the, uh, there's a point in the book where he's talking about uh, betting, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, uh, the uh, athletes who are, you know, involved in gambling and betting. And he says, I, I couldn't wrap my head around how someone who is a athlete could actually agree to do something like this. And he says, his American friends are like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, this is, <laughs> this is the United States. There's a difference. <laughs> and talking with, you know, this, this Trinidadian elder about it, sports was ingrained in the culture in the most positive sense. And that's maybe what the joy and the fun that I experienced, that's what that's yeah. maybe what that was about. Yeah. Right? And so maybe that's what a community-driven education and a community-driven athletics program feels and looks like. How do you make it or reattach it to this sort of cultural autonomy of, of, of that human beings all possess? Absolutely. Well, Joshua Myers, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you for having me.